And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedediah, and who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, and Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, friends, good morning. Uh, it's lovely to see you at church uh, this morning. Um, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Huey. And uh, I'm uh, one of the ministers here at this church. And uh, uh, just uh, so that you're aware, um, this, this morning um, our sound system sort of cut out completely. And so Jono and, and others have worked really hard to kind of bring it back. So if you're experiencing sort of sound issues uh, here or um, on Zoom, then uh, just know that that's uh, the case. And very thankful to God for our team who know about these things. Um, and, can, and can help us. Uh, I think Jono is 50% grey hair this morning. Um, but uh, uh, can you all hear me okay at the back? Yep, wonderful. Uh, well, uh, it'd be great if you can um, have Zechariah chapter 6 open in front of you, and uh, we'll uh, look through that uh, carefully this morning. Uh, but how about uh, as, we, as we turn to Zechariah 6, uh, let me lead us in prayer. And uh, we'll ask for God's help to understand his word to us. Let's pray. Uh, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the great privilege of being your people. Uh, thank you for the freedom uh, to be able to gather in this way uh, around your word. And uh, we thank you that you are a God um, who reveals yourself uh, in the scriptures. And so we ask that uh, you would help us to listen attentively to the things you say to us this morning. Uh, and in doing so, we ask that we might come to know you uh, and your son, uh, our Lord Jesus, uh, more and more uh, so that we might uh, follow him uh, as our king in the way that he desires. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, what are some signs that give you hope? What are some signs that give you hope? Uh, when I asked this question in our growth group this week, uh, someone mentioned the Statue of Liberty. Uh, you know, when immigrants arrive in New York uh, and see the Statue of Liberty, they are given hope of freedom and opportunity and a place to realize their dreams. Uh, or it could be signs of labor. 
Uh, we've had many babies born uh, in our congregation recently. And uh, hands up if you're expecting to be birthed sometime soon. Uh, quite a few of you. Um, so mothers will know that when you start having contractions, uh, that's the sign that despite a world of pain to come, sorry ladies, uh, despite a world of pain to come, it will be soon over and it will give uh, way to the hope of a new life being born. Or perhaps it's a road sign. Uh, if you see a sign that says Gold Coast, 50 kilometres, that's a sign that very soon your long journey will be over and you'll be sitting on a sun-soaked beach. Uh, what are some signs that give you hope? Uh, well, we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and specifically, as, uh, as, as Andrew mentioned, we've been looking at the eight uh, visions that Zechariah has at, uh, in the first half of the book. And uh, today we come to the conclusion of the visions uh, at the end of chapter 6. Uh, today's passage is not in itself a vision. Uh, you, might, you might have uh, uh, realised that as, as you read through. But it is, if you like, the, the concluding summary of all the visions that we've been seeing over the last couple of months. And uh, I want to suggest that today's passage is all about God giving signs of hope to his people. God giving signs of hope to his people. Uh, if you know the background, you will know that the people of God in Zechariah's time were people who were desperately in need of hope. They were people who had spent uh, a lifetime away from their home city of Jerusalem to live in a foreign land called Babylon. Uh, it's important to know, I think, that exile of living in Babylon for the people of Israel was not like, you know, how um, these days there are many expats living in other parts of the world in exciting cities. Uh, it wasn't like that at all for the people of Israel. For living in exile was a sure sign to Israel that God had abandoned them for their sins, for their sin and rebellion and idolatry against God. Uh, sure, many of them were living in material comfort in the land of Babylon, as, as we've seen in previous weeks. But as you and I probably perceive, the material comforts of this world are no guarantee of the kind of real peace and real security and real satisfaction that our hearts cry out for. Is that true? I mean, how many people have everything that money can buy and yet live with inner turmoil or deep insecurities? or dissatisfaction because something is not right in their lives, something is missing in their lives. To be materially rich but without God in this world is the epitome of hopelessness. And so, in many ways, the experience of Israel in, the, in, in exile was a spiritual death. It was God forsaking you. 
It was, if you like, a living hell. However, even though many of the people who were in exile had now returned to the city of Jerusalem, and even though God himself had returned to be with his people uh, in response to his people's re repentance, it wasn't as though life had become dramatically more easy for the people of God. And so today's passage is really about God giving signs of hope for his people because God's promise to them, as we've been seeing all along, is that he would dwell with them in a way never before experienced. He would be with them, he would live with them, and he would bring blessing to them in a way not previously imagined. Now, the first sign of hope that you can see in our passage is uh, the crowning of Joshua the high priest. The crowning of Joshua the high priest. You can see it there from verse 9 where Zechariah is told to take something from the exiles who have recently returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure who Heldai and Tobijah and Jediah are. Um, it doesn't seem to matter too much in this passage, although they were probably very well known to the people in Zechariah's time. But what is Zechariah to take from them? Well, uh, in verse 11, you can see that Zechariah is told to take silver and gold from them. Now, I think what this is, is uh, it's meant to evoke memories of the exodus for the people of Israel. Uh, you know, the exodus was a time when God rescued his people uh, out of slavery in Egypt. But it was also the time when the people of God plundered the Egyptians, if you remember, by taking their silver and gold and uh, things that were precious. And so the expectation that is set up in this passage is that God is going to do something uh, even more amazing than what he has done before in the period of the Exodus. But it's important to understand that what we see here is not a forcible taking. It's not as though uh, Zechariah is told to go and forcibly take his silver and gold from the returning exiles. Rather, it's a free will offering that is given by the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem. It is, a, it is a joyful offering that they are making towards God's purposes. Uh, you know, God's people who have tasted God's goodness are always the people who are generous givers, aren't they? They are the ones who are cheerful givers rather than having to be coaxed into giving because they consider the work of God so much more important than their own comforts. I wonder whether you and I are people who are like this. Because we also have tasted the goodness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand the importance of his work. But why is Zechariah to take this silver and gold? Well, you can see there in verse 11 that it's because God wants him to make a crown. Uh, you don't actually see this in your 
or English translations. But the word crown that you see there in verse 11 is actually a, a plural in the original language. And so I think what's going on here is that Zechariah is actually instructed not to make one crown, but two crowns out of the silver and gold. One, one crown, uh, or the other crown, we'll see later on. But here, Zechariah is instructed to place the first crown on top of the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, uh, that's a little bit confusing, isn't it? Why would God uh, tell Zechariah to put a crown on top of the high priest? Well, when you and I uh, see crowns in the Bible, uh, just as in our children's talk, we naturally think of kings, don't we? Uh, the rule of kings. But here, a crown is placed on the head, not of a king, but on the head of a high priest in Israel. And so what is going on here? Well, uh, you don't have to look this up, but uh, uh, on the screen behind me, it's going to come up um, a quote from Leviticus chapter 8, verse 9. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 9. Uh, listen to how the headwear of the high priest in Israel is, is uh, described here. Uh, it says, uh, and he, that is Moses, set the turban on his head, on the head of Aaron, the high priest. Um, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate. And notice these words, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, the high priest also wore a crown. And so uh, what's going on here is not Zechariah placing the crown on Joshua and saying, you are now to be uh, the king and ruler of Israel. He's actually putting a crown on Joshua, the high priest, saying, I'm, I'm just putting the finishing touches on commissioning you as the high priest. So that you can rule over the temple, uh, which is where the high priest did his duties. Why is this important? Well, uh, you might have picked up in our series in Zechariah that Zechariah is essentially all about the building of God's temple in Jerusalem. But what you need to understand is that without the high priest, the temple of God would be of no benefit to the people because it was the high priest who had the role of atoning for the sins of the people. Uh, you might know that in Israel, it was a high priest who would enter into the most holiest of places within the temple once a year in order to make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people of God so that they could be right with God. But of course, this was only ever meant to be a temporary measure for in the New Testament, and specifically in the book of Hebrews, uh, we're reminded that the blood of goats and the blood of bulls can never take away the sin and rebellion of human beings in this world. But when Jesus Christ came into the world as God's great high priest, well, he did not offer up sacrifices of animals year after year after year, but he offered up himself 
as a once for all sacrifice when he died on the cross to atone for your sin and my sin and bring us to God. And the book of Hebrews wonderfully reminds us that after atoning for sin on the cross, Jesus rose from the grave to be our eternal high priest who intercedes for us before the Father. Uh, Hebrews 7 says, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, our great high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, I don't know whether you've been following the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial uh, on the media. Um, hands up if you've been following the, the trial. No one wants to own up to it. <laughs> Who's been reading the tabloids? Um, it's hard not to be aware of what's happening. It's very sad, really, for all the dirty laundry of this couple being aired in public. But uh, I think it was clear for everyone to see that Johnny Depp was vindicated in the end because his legal team, who were interceding for him, were vastly superior to the legal team of Amber Heard. Is that right? For those in the know? Um, that's the kind of picture that we get of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is pictured a bit like a lawyer who intercedes on our behalf, who is, is the person who stands in the middle of us and God so that we are vindicated before God. But it's not as though we don't sin in our lives, is it? I mean, anyone who thinks they don't sin and rebel against God, uh, the Bible says, is delusional. But it's because when I turn to Jesus, he intercedes before God the Father on my behalf, saying to him, uh, please forgive Huey because I have paid for his sin by offering myself at the cross. So there's nothing more to be paid. Please don't hold his sin against him. And that kind of intercession, God does not ignore. So, my brothers and sisters, um, are you burdened by sin in your life? Does your sin make you doubt whether God will really accept you? Um, think about your sins, friends, and the way you've lived even this week before God. Well, the great encouragement of God's word is not to hide these sins before God, but to go to Jesus, who is your great high priest, for he is the one who will intercede for you and vindicate you before God through his atoning sacrifice on the cross for your sin. You might be weighed down by the seriousness of your sin, but what a great comfort it is, friends, to know that the Bible says Jesus is our great high priest, the one who is always interceding on behalf of us before the Father. <laughs> However, friends, notice that the crown on Joshua's head itself 
Um, strangely enough, points to another crown uh, in this passage. For in verse 12, you can see that Zechariah is to speak to Joshua about an enigmatic figure called the branch. You notice that? Now, um, you and I might be somewhat unfamiliar with this term, the branch. But the people of Israel would know exactly what Zechariah is talking about here because in the Old Testament, the branch was actually code for God's Messiah. For in the Old Testament, God had promised his people that he would send a Messiah or send a king who would be in the line of King David, the greatest king in Israel, his, Israel's history. And this king would not be like all the other degenerate kings in Israel who led the people into sin and idolatry and ultimately into exile, but this king would be a righteous king, a king of, of justice. And this king would rule not only over the land of Israel, but ultimately over the face of the whole earth. This would be a king who would bring salvation to God's people and bring judgment and destruction to those who would not bow the knee to him, you see. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, uh, notice that God had promised this for the future. It says, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was King David's uh, father. And as a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Or have a look with me at Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 15. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Uh, God had promised for the future in those days, and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. It seems that the branch, or literally the shoot, is an entirely appropriate description because in the exile, Israel was actually like a tree that had been cut down and chopped down. A few years ago, I had a tree in my backyard that needed chopping down. And so uh, I called uh, Harry the tree lopper uh, to come and cut down this tree for me. He was a big Lebanese man. Apparently there are a lot of trees in Lebanon, so he knew exactly what he was doing. And uh, he came and um, cut down this tree. And to this day, there is just this stump in my backyard, this dead tree. And that's the kind of image we get of God's people in the Old Testament. They were cut down. There was just a stump left. They were dead before God. And yet what God is promising here is that there will be a branch or a shoot that kind of grows out of that dead tree to bring it back to life, you see. But friends, um, just look at the description of this man who will be the branch to bring Israel back to life. Uh, we've seen firstly that uh, he will be a descendant of King David, uh, but secondly, in verse 13, you'll see there that this branch is the one who is going to build the temple of the Lord. Thirdly, again in verse 13, 
it will be the one who bears majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And finally, at the end of verse 13, it seems like he will share his rule with a priest and there will be harmony between the two, between the king and the priest as they work together to bring blessing to God's people. You see. Now, who is this branch? Who is this branch? Well, uh, in the context of Zechariah, it seems like the branch is the person of Zerubbabel, who, if you remember, was the governor of Judah and Jerusalem at this time. Uh, certainly, Zerubbabel, uh, if you remember, was a descendant of King David. And he was the one who we know completed the building of God's temple in, in Jerusalem. But Zerubbabel is also a, a fairly awkward fit here um, because we also know that whilst Zerubbabel was a governor, uh, he was never really the king of Israel. He was never crowned as the king of Israel. About 500 years after the time of Zechariah, uh, along comes Jesus. And remarkably, Jesus starts to tick off all the credentials of this branch, descendant of David, tick. In Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, where you see the family tree of Jesus, you can see that he is descended from the great King David himself, as well as Zerubbabel. Temple builder, tick. In John chapter 2, Jesus says to his disciples that if they destroy the temple, he is going to raise up the temple in three days. Uh, he wasn't, of course, talking about you know, the physical temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his own body which was the temple of God where God himself resided. He was saying, destroy this at the cross and I will raise it up again in three days. Um, priest on the throne? Tick. In fact, when Jesus comes, the role of the high priest and the role of God's king are in such great harmony that they exist in one person so that he is able to bring blessing to his people. For as the great high priest, Jesus makes the perfect sacrifice, as we have seen, for the sins of the people. And as God's risen king, well, Jesus rules the world now with righteousness and justice and truth. Now for us, that is a present reality. Uh, as those who trust in Jesus, we know that Jesus is sitting on his throne, ruling this world with all majesty and glory and honour. But for the people of Zechariah's day, this was a future reality. And that's why in verse 14, uh, the other crown that Zechariah was told to, to make was to be placed in the temple to remind the exiles that the day of this branch was coming. 
But if the people of Zechariah's day were to see this day of salvation, this day of the branch, well, they were to submit to God's rule. They were to submit to the crown. In other words, they were to submit their whole lives to the rule of God and live in obedience to God by continuing to build the temple. Uh, in verse 15, have a look with me at verse 15. Uh, you can see there that Zechariah speaks of those who are far off in the land of Babylon, returning to Jerusalem out of obedience to God so that they could help in building the temple. Further, God says that all the blessings that he has spoken about in the branch will be theirs, not just automatically, but as they diligently obey his voice by making the building project of God the priority of their lives. That is, the people of Zechariah's day will experience the salvation to come by submitting to the crown, by submitting to the rule of God in their lives. And brothers and sisters, it's no different for us, is it? For what God desires of us is that we would be people who submit to his rule. The only difference is that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has installed Jesus as his king who now rules the world. And so to submit to God means to submit to Jesus as king and to live in obedience to Jesus by taking part in his wonderful building project through the proclamation of the gospel so that people will hear the good news of Jesus and come to be part of the temple that God is building. I reckon it's a bit hard for us to know sometimes what it looks like to submit to a king. Uh, for our only experience of kingship in the Bible is perhaps um, the royal family in England. Is that right? Uh, you know, we have a monarch in England. Uh, she's a lovely Christian lady from, from what I can gather. And uh, we symbolically submit to the crown. And yet, the Queen actually has very little influence over the way we live our lives day by day. Uh, I mean, how many of us think about the Queen? Hands up if you thought about the Queen this, this week. Oh, one person, well done. Um, or how many of us have read what she says? Or how many of us actually desire to do things that would please her? You see, none of us are in the slightest affected by that monarch. And yet that cannot be true of Jesus, can it? For to turn to Jesus as king, as our king, means to let him rule over every part of our lives and to make his work the priority of our lives, you see. Uh, when I was a young Christian, a wise Christian pastor often said that if Jesus is the king of your life, 
then you would think about your life and your decisions in the following way. Firstly, you would pick a church or ministry where you would be committed to serving Jesus and building his temple as a priority. Secondly, you would choose to live as close as possible to your church to maximize the opportunities to serve Jesus in this way. And finally, you will choose a job that will finance this happening. Now, I know what many of you would say. You would say, have you seen the house prices in Stratfield lately? That's what you would say, isn't it? There's absolutely no way I can afford to live in Stratfield. Uh, that may be true, but it's not really about living in Stratfield, is it? It's about whether you and I are submitting to Jesus as our King and living in obedience to Him in building His kingdom so that we are willing to rearrange all the big things in our lives in ways that serve Jesus and the building of his kingdom. Is that what you do in your life? Are you willing to do that? Or is there a limit where you no longer want to submit to the king? In actual fact, I think the sad reality is that many Christian people make decisions in their lives in completely the opposite way. And you tell me whether this is true or not. Many Christians do this. Firstly, they make decisions about their lifestyle for themselves and for their children, if they have children. Secondly, they choose a job that will finance the kind of lifestyle that they want. If that lifestyle means travelling all over the place, and experiencing everything that this world has to offer so that they can tick off everything on their bucket list, well, so be it. And thirdly, they will choose a church so that they can kind of fit Jesus in around the edges of their lives after they've done everything that they want to do, you see. But that's not what it looks like to serve Jesus as your king, is it? But what Jesus wants from his followers is the kind of submission that is costly and will require commitment and obedience to God in doing the work of building the temple, proclaiming the gospel, making the work of God the priority in your life rather than being followers who simply float around and try to squeeze Jesus in if they have a bit of spare time. So, friends, brothers and sisters, are you, you willing to make Jesus the king of your life? For make no mistake, that's the kind of submission that God wants, that Jesus wants. Are you willing to throw away your own crown, thinking that you and I are the masters, the kings, the Lord of our own lives, and cast it before Jesus 
because you want him to be the one who rules your life. But that is the kind of submission that Jesus desires, and that is the kind of submission that will lead to the blessing of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, rather than eternal punishment for sin and an eternally dark future. God has sent his branch. He has sent his Messiah in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In love, this branch, this Messiah went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, and he rose again to be the king of the world. If you're looking for a sign that can give you hope, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus that says Jesus is now your great high priest and that Jesus is now the king that wants you to submit to him. And so will you submit to him? Submit to him not only in order to escape God's wrath for sin, but submit to him because submitting to him is such a joy. For submitting to Jesus is submitting to the kind of king who loves you so much that he was willing to lay down his very own life. And so will you do that? Will you treat Jesus as your king? Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you that every word that you spoke in the Old Testament finds their yes and amen in Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is our great high priest who gave himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for our sin and now lives to intercede for us before you. Thank you that as the risen one, he is the righteous king who sits at your right hand, ruling the world with majesty and glory and power, and now calls on all people to turn to him and to submit to him for salvation. We pray that you would help us to turn to Jesus this day and to live with him as our king. Please help us and strengthen us to live not for ourselves and for our own desires, but to live for Jesus as our king and as our loving saviour who gave his all for us. And we pray that you would help us to repent of simply trying to fit Jesus into the edges of our lives but that we would so love serving him as our king that Jesus and his kingdom would drive our lives and our decisions, even if it means giving up our comforts. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Uh,